Today on the show, we are making it abundantly clear that nothing short of a stone burner would get us to stop making this podcast. So buckle up for chomping down on some spice forces. Conspiracy will fail. We're doing it. <laughs> Welcome to Gom Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Leo. My name's Abu. Oh, and today on the show, we're back at it with another dessert for dinner, spice (laughs) morsel episode. You either liked it or you didn't, but we didn't hear enough people saying that they hated it, so we're back to do it again another Spice Morsel episode. That's right. And look, before we dig in, a quick spoiler warning. Today's episode will only contain spoilers for the first half of Dune. So as long as you've watched Danny Villeneuve's adaptation, you're good to go for today. It's true. But Abu, what is today's episode? What's this whole thing we're doing? So as a refresher, we did our first experimental all Spice Morsels episode a couple of weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and we're back to do it again. Right. Basically, at the end of all of our book club episodes, for those of you that have read Dune, Dune Messiah, and now Children of Dune, along with us, at the end of those episodes, we usually like to breeze through some rapid-fire spice morsels, these small bits of deep-cut Dune lore that enrich the world and the reading of that episode's chapters. And we've had some folks message us, folks like Thomas Jordan, who we mentioned in the first episode, (laughs) asking us to do more Spice Morsels because it's their favorite segment of those episodes. So here we are. We decided, (laughs) fuck it, a whole episode of nothing but dessert. Oops, all morsels. Purchase (laughs) her trademark. And these morsels, these little, you know, Dune Encyclopedia entries often are parts of the lore that don't quite justify an entire episode for themselves, right? So very fun to kind of pick these out. Yeah. I'll also say quickly, we'll talk about you emailing us in the at the uh, in our outro, but if there's something that we haven't talked about that you want us to, 100% let us know. Reach out. Happy to do that. Definitely. But let's jump in. We promised this first morsel <laughs> during our Baron Vladimir uh, <laughs> deep dives. And goodness, it's a chunky morsel. Mini episode. That's what this is. Gunsing Harkonnen, Papa Vlad, Ooh. Vladimir's Vladimir's father. <laughs> That's right, Vladimir's <laughs> yeah. daddy. Let's talk about this guy. So he was born in 1079 AG to Baron at the time Granuk Harkonnen and an unnamed mother. Now Gunsing seems to have only survived through childhood because he was unthreatening. His father Granuk was apparently this foul monster of a man, very reminiscent of the beast that Vladimir himself would grow to be in the books. Grenick apparently had every one of his sons killed to, quote, better his chances of dying quietly in bed, end quote. Just to give you an idea of what kind of father we're talking about here. Now, a lot of what we know about Gunsing's earlier years, surviving his weird, awful father, comes from the diaries of a poet, Sil Reeve Perrin, who 
I'm pretty sure we've mentioned before, but we will continue to mention as we do these spice morsels, very fun author in the encyclopedia, Syl Reeve Perrin, who visited the Harkonnen court and wrote about what he saw in a volume titled Pearls Before Swine. (laughs) Very subtle, subtle author here. (laughs) Now, he described the possibility of Granuk's death as a, quote, happy event and also, quote, not far distant. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Because Granuk, quote, had vices in number to match his jowls. Holy and quote, shit. I love Silvery Perrin. Such a fun writer. Yeah. It's great. Now, Gunsing, amidst the squalor, was apparently a lovely lad. Oh. Learning the balisette, musician, and was, quote, slight, fair, with large, watery eyes. Aww. End quote. It's cute. Yeah. Sounds Cute. <laughs> and appearances aside, Sill notes that Gunsing clearly had his wits about him, like clearly knew what was going on, was unthreatening, sure, but also knew how to stay out of trouble in a very, what it sounds like, murderous court. <laughs> right, right. Cute, watery eyes, but also good head on his shoulders. Good head on his shoulders, indeed. Now, Papa Granook retreated to his chambers and died in near isolation to a nervous disease in the year 10,102 AG. This is around when Gunsing is 23 years old. Right. As Sill noted, Gunsing saw the writing on the wall. He knew this was coming. And he fully had a plan for what he had to do in the final days before his father's death. He knew he was the next baron in line, the heir to the throne. And so he had a game plan. He leveraged his father's distrust of everyone to basically execute the commanding members of the military and the elite guard, freeing up those positions so that he could appoint his own people, people he could trust, people that were loyal to him instead of his father. It's a a tough look if they were good people. Like, that's a tough look. Yeah, tough look, but But, a very Harkonnen look. Oh, yeah. And also, I imagine he was discerning. I'm sure if there was like a Gurney Halleck level dude, he'd leave him be. You know, right. like that guy's useful. Again, good head on his shoulders, Gunsing. Exactly. Now, as a quick aside, the final lines of Sill's diary regarding those final days are almost unbelievable and incredible. <laughs> and I wanted to share them here in full almost. Quote, when the blood stopped flowing and he, Gunsing, became Baron Harkonnen, he vowed to improve the house. Poor fool. <laughs> Nothing short of a stone burner would improve House Harkonnen. <laughs> I was thankful just to get away before some ignorant sycophant with martial inclinations killed me. End quote. Dude, what? <laughs> so good. Amazing. Nothing short of a stone burner would improve House Harkonnen. That's brutal. Anything this man wrote, I would read. Easily. Question, if Silreve Perrin had a Patreon, I would be highest <laughs> tier. 100%. Incredible Truly. stuff. So there it is. Gunsink becomes the Baron of House Harkonnen upon his father's death in 10,102 AG. And his early rule is defined by pretty shocking insight into people's motivations. First, he was apparently very well informed, and his placement of those commanding military elite guard members, basically the ones that are loyal to him, was exactly the ticket to his survival and his early success in these early years as Baron. If he hadn't done that, 
very likely we wouldn't be here talking about Gunsling because he'd be a blip in Harkonnen history. He would have been dead. He also had a distinct ability to, quote, smell out power plays, end quote, which in the Imperium is a very good distinct ability to have. It's pretty good. Yeah. That'll keep you alive for quite some time. Relatively, right? (laughs) (laughs) Now, he married, as we talked about in the Vladimir Harkonnen episode, Muertana, subtle name, lady of House Cerebella to cement a union with that house. And they had three sons together, but on the side with a concubine, Ganella Sorvag, great name, Gunsing also (laughs) fathered Abulard Harkonnen, who renounced his Harkonnen name and titles and then fathered Fade Rautha and Glossu Raban. So anyway, that's Abelard, the half-brother of Vladimir Harkonnen. We never meet him. Maybe we'll do an episode on him. I don't know. Maybe he'll be a morsel. Who's to say? Point is, he married Mortana. Gunsing married Mortana. Their marriage was basically loveless, <laughs> very lacking in warmth. Again, she had the disposition of a scorpion. It was all politics, basically. Yeah. Now, it's also noted in the encyclopedia that Gunsing leaned heavily on his mentat. Sure. Chardon Cleese, our him. boy. Our we boy. talked about him in the Baron episodes. <laughs> yeah. And his son, Vladimir, once he came of age, around 12 years old. <laughs> yeah. He started sort of helping his father in his political duties. I mean, that's the age I started helping my father with his political duties. So listen. Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. yeah that, that, that's when I started working in the blacksmith shop and <laughs> making swords with my daddy. 12 years old. Also, I mean, coincident, right? That's the age Fremen ride the worms, too. Interesting. Yeah. Nice little parallel there. Indeed. And these three, this trio, basically worked hard to establish not only the economic foundations for House Arconan, but also their political future. These three, Chardon and Gunsing and Vlad, were actually pretty close personally as well. The Dune Encyclopedia points out, quote, among these three existed a trust and affection unique in the history of House Arconan, end quote. Not bad. Not yeah. bad. Again, we joked about it in the Baron episodes, but one of the rare, healthy, positive father-son relationships we see in Dune, right? Gunsing and Vladimir. There's no way this could end terribly, right? <laughs> yeah, that's why we're talking about it. And the end, <laughs> it's great. No, this is when Gunsing scores a huge victory and also signs his death warrant, basically. So how's Cerebella, who married Muertana to him, in a not so subtle attempt to absorb House Harkonnen and basically increase their stakes in the universe. But they fucked up. They underestimated Gunsing Harkonnen. His big watery eyes (laughs) set their (laughs) expectations low. He very much rose to the challenge. He and Chardon Cleese orchestrated a process verbal or process verbal. I've never said it out loud. This is the thing that Fenring jokes about at Fade's 17th birthday party, as a coincidence. Basically, an accusal of a crime against the Empire. So they frame him. (laughs) They frame the Duke of House Cerebella, Fernandez Cerebella, who was Muertana's father. So the Duke Fernandez Cerebella married his daughter to Gunsing in an attempt to take over House Harkonnen, which, of course shines some light on Muertana's maybe aspirations. Chardon built a convincing case against this Fernandez fella and 
one morning, he was found dead. Oh, no. <laughs> and coincidentally, his planet was immediately occupied by Sardaukar. How did they get there? Whoa. Mm, convenient. <laughs> oh, House Carino. What are you doing? What are you doing there? <laughs> so, yes, very quickly, Gunsing scored this huge victory. But Muertana wasn't really happy with that, was she? <laughs> no, not at all. And actually, after her father's death, Mortana went from not really caring about Gunsing to outright hating his guts. Yeah. <laughs> and this ultimately leads to the fateful night that we talked a lot about in our Baron episodes, this banquet. Right. Gunsing has arranged a state dinner to celebrate his winnings from Sarabella. Sure. Mortana was at one end of the table and his sons were on his left and right. Everyone is seated. We're about to eat some delicious Chicken wings? <laughs> sure. Yeah, slick wings. Yeah. <laughs> slick wings. There you go. Gunsing toasts to the prosperity of House Harkonnen, and upon emptying his glass, his son, Araskin, crushes his skull with his goblet. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's the end of Gunsing right there, but this scene continues. A quick series of events takes place. Araskin immediately goes from crushing his father's skull to jumping on Vladimir and trying to choke him to death. And we hear about this moment, once again, from our main poet, Sil Reeve Perrin. Right. Sil writes, quote, Only two persons remained calm, Mortana and Chardin Cleese. Moving resignedly to the struggling figures, Cleese touched a needle to Araskin's neck, killing him instantly. End quote. Yeah. Incredible. Chardin Cleese, my guy. I love that so much. Like, just the idea of everyone in the room panics. Muratana obviously doesn't, because this was probably something she arranged with Araskin. Right, totally. But Chardin's just like, yeah, all right, I got to do my job. <laughs> Let me save Vladimir's life. Yeah, it shows how valuable Chardin was and what a good call it was on Gunsing's part to bring this mentat into his inner circle. Right. Chardin, total badass. Total badass. Real one. Real one, Chardin Cleese. Now, there is some speculation as to why Gunsing did some of what he did. Like his decision-making process towards the end of his life, very questionable. <laughs> like, yeah, my wife is the daughter of the house I just obliterated through trickery. Yeah, I'll do a big party. She'll be at the table. That'll be fun. What a good decision that is. And again, Silreve Perrin hits us with some insight, some sort of speculation as to why the quality of Gunsing's decision-making seems to have declined. And to be clear, Gunsing had to this point avoided Chamarki, he had avoided numerous assassination attempts, but overall, he had become depressed and it had taken its toll on him. Having overthrown his wife's house, it would have made perfect sense to have her immediately executed, and yet he let her live, and in fact, still kept her close. Quote, Perhaps he thought her powerless, retained a mistaken fondness for the mother of his sons, merely pitied her, or may simply have grown weary of the deadly intrigue, end quote. Which, golly, sounds a lot to me like Duke Leto Atreides, right? In this first half of Dune, right. telling Paul, I'm tired, my boy. <laughs> I'm so right. tired. So it's possible he just kind of saw the writing on the wall again, knew his time was coming to an end, and his son... Vladimir had been working with him for eight years, nine years, clearly was maybe demonstrating he was capable of, of taking that position. Unknowns aside, that is Gunsing Harkonnen. 
a fair-faced, unassuming musician who deftly navigated in numerous opportunities to die <laughs> and fathered both Vladimir and his own death sentence. Also, Abelard. Sorry, forgot that one. <laughs> Everyone does. Everyone does. <laughs> Except for Fade Rautha. He's like, Papa? No. We've... Papa. Papa. So that's Gunsing Harkonnen. Incredible. All right. Let's digest that morsel for a few minutes here yep. and take a short break. But don't go anywhere, folks. There's more left on our plate. So we'll be back in just a little bit with some more spice morsels. Indeed. All right. That was- when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. That was a big morsel, but I hope your tummy's got some room because there's more on our plate. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about our next morsels here. Indeed. Let's do it. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you enjoyed your break because now it's time to talk about worm writing. Worm writing. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, we know the Fremen hitchhike on these hyper dangerous megafauna, but... I wanted to peel back some of the segments of the topic and take a deeper dive into the practice of worm writing and what we can learn about the history of this fascinating <laughs> mode of transportation. So first, let's back up and talk about the origins of worm writing itself. When the Zensuni wanderers first arrived on Arrakis, all the way back in 7,193 AG, they spent two generations basically walking around the desert or taking ornithopters. And both options kind of sucked. Yeah. <laughs> Walking was super slow and you could die in a million and one ways. Right. And ornithopters mostly belonged to the guild. And the Fremen were obviously very eager to break that tie and reduce that reliance on external groups and external technologies. Right. Also, as we know, the desert is very brutal to technology. Right. I'm sure ornithopter maintenance was very pricey. That's true. Yeah. Now eager to find a solution that was harmonious to this new planet they now called home, they patiently looked around and waited for some sort of answer to present itself. How can we get around the desert without walking and without ornithopters? What options do we have? Is that a worm? Oh, shit. Is that a worm? (laughs) I was going to say the subtle solution of the biggest fucking animal on the planet. Yeah. Thick Desert Spicy Boys (laughs) presented themselves as an option in the year 7,265 AG. This is, I think, two generations later. So 7,265 AG. So here's the story. A group of Fremen were out checking on some spice, hanging out, doing some rhythmic walking, I'm sure, (laughs) when a large spicy boy crashed their party. It was like, hey guys, what you up to? Most of them got away 
escaped onto some rocks. Classic move. Classic maneuver. Except for one. And that is someone who's listed as Rothar. Or Rother. Rothar. Who, in a classic deer-caught-in-the-headlights moment, panicked and remained perfectly in place. Oh, buddy. Terrible survival instincts. (laughs) Buddy. (laughs) Buddy. Wrong move. Pitch and roll. Pitch and roll. Take cover. So, centimeters from the worm's side, he grabbed one of the ring segments for some reason. More on that in a second. The worm turned, and soon our boy, Rothar, was atop the thick, spicy lad from the desert. Oh my god. Why he did it isn't clear at all, but the Dune Encyclopedia suggests he may have just been trying to get away from the death mouth that the worms have. (laughs) You know, like, it's this big, lumbering thing. Yeah, trying to get away from the teeth, pretty reasonable. But whatever his reason, once he was atop the worm, apparently it sped off into the desert with him as its passenger. And then he doesn't come up again. Like, (laughs) Rothar, like, I just cannot help but picture all of the Fremen like, wait, where the fuck is Rothar? Bye! (laughs) Bye, Rothar! (laughs) And he was never seen again. (laughs) Oh, my God. Just rides off into the binary sunset. (laughs) It's incredible. Hilarious. Well... Luckily for everyone besides Rothar, who rumor has it is still riding that worm. (laughs) He's still out there. Within days of this whole Rothar incident, the first crude maker hooks had been built. And volunteers from every siege were out here attempting to recreate Rothar's success. Yeah, We can climb on these worms. We can control them. We can ride them. Right. Obviously, a ton of Fremen died in these early days. Sure. You got to figure out the exact mechanics of how this works. Right. And that's going to require some, some folks risking their lives. Right. But the Fremen pressed on and ultimately developed the modern techniques and best practices and technologies that they use in Dune. In fact, the Dune Encyclopedia tells us it was only about one full generation's time from the Rothar incident before the practice of worm writing was fully established and fairly commonplace. Yeah. Which, when you consider the pace of technology, that's pretty quick. That's amazing (laughs) that they were persistent enough to make this thing happen and then turn it into a common practice in a single generation. (laughs) All it took was incountable human lives (laughs) thrown at the worms. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the rest of this entry in the Dune Encyclopedia is mostly what we saw in Dune already and some of the stuff that happens in the second half. So we'll wrap this morsel here. Nevertheless, the next time you either in a movie or a show see someone riding a worm or, hey, maybe you're reading the book and someone talks about riding a worm, I'd say pour one out for old Rothar. Oh, Rothar. Rothar, who, as you said, Abu, (laughs) legend has it, he's still out there (laughs) panicking and clutching to that ring segment. (laughs) Right. He figured out how to get on, but nobody (laughs) ever told him how to get off. Just, guys, guys, help, guys, please. (laughs) Thousands of years later. (laughs) Guys, come on, guys, please. Oh, man. So funny. All right. We have one more morsel left on our plate. Let's talk about oil lenses. Yeah. (laughs) This is way more fascinating than it sounds, we promise. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) From Dune, we actually get multiple mentions of oil lenses. And so we figured, hey, let's dive a little deeper into this and learn what we can. Yeah. And just in case you've forgotten, 
Here is an example of a mention of oil lens from Dune. Quote, Paul stepped past her, lifting his binoculars. He adjusted their internal pressure with a quick twist, focused the oil lenses on the other cliff, lifting golden tan in morning light across open sand. End quote. Like a lovely little passage. <laughs> Just like great writing. Yeah. yeah. Frank helps us out because he uses the term oil lenses a bunch of times in the first book. So in the terminology of the Imperium at the end of the first book, we get this definition. Quote, Huffa foil held in static tension by an enclosing force field within a viewing tube as part of a magnifying or other light manipulation system. Because each lens element can be adjusted individually, one micron at a time, the oil lens is considered the ultimate in accuracy for manipulating visible light. End quote. Dang. I know. Why is it so complicated? <laughs> Why isn't it just metal, like glass? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are That's lenses incredible. created from force field enclosed oil. So cool. Yeah, it's wild. And of course, we had to learn more. We can't just settle with that definition and no, call it a day. Of course not. We turned to the Dune Encyclopedia, which gives us some great information. Indeed. These oil lenses were invented in 7687 AG mm -hmm. by someone named Marcus Vander, who was an Ixian field technician experimenting with fluids compressed between force fields for the purposes of transporting liquids. Hmm. So another instance of an invention that was stumbled upon while looking for something else. Right. He tried out oil from Ikaz's huff of plant because it was almost perfectly transparent and because it was super viscous. Right. Two properties he was very much looking for. Right. Marcus Vander was shocked then when the field suspended oil focused a beam of light onto his lab counter and melted the surface. <laughs> yeah. Oops. You're trying to make like a fancy jar and you accidentally burn the surface. <laughs> I also immediately, I'm like, I bet he found his favorite action figure or like went to find some ants or something. He's like, this is, <laughs> this is great. What a great right. invention. Right. What else can I melt? <laughs> what else can I melt? <laughs> Hashtag doesn't melt. Now, <laughs> within 15 years of that discovery, this new type of lens completely replaced every other older type of lens in the known galaxy. Wild. Yeah. And in fact, at the time of the Dune Encyclopedia being written over 8,000 years after the discovery, they're still the best kind of lens out there. It doesn't get better than oh. Marcus Vander's force field enclosed Huffafoil. Insane. Crazy. Yeah. Now, regarding that kind of final commercial product that reigned supreme for 8,000 years, the Dune Encyclopedia basically reiterates what Frank wrote, adding some extra detail. Basically reiterates what Frank wrote, adding some Dune Encyclopedia-like detail. Basically, each lens is made of 0.5 to 1 full millimeter of Huffafoil, held in static tension by an enclosing force field, and placed within a tube for magnifying basically whatever you were using. Although it seems like mostly binoculars. <laughs> Frank points out, the force field, and thus the lens, could be calibrated one micron at a time. Quote, no other type of lens element approaches such accuracy. End quote. You don't say. Wild. <laughs> I know. I mean, just the idea. You know, Paul's adjusting that little thing on his binoculars. He can adjust the density by a micron at a time. Wild. Yeah, wild. Now, while this technology had an incredible 8,000-year reign, 
there was one blip right. in this amazing track record that came in 8,176 AG. Yeah. The of crop until that point was almost exclusively being harvested from ECAS. Check out our ECAS episode to learn all about this incredible planet. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in 76, the harvest was absolute trash. Right. And this caused some supply chain shortages of the oil, which obviously hurt the final product as well. Right. Luckily, the very next year, in 8177, there was an incredible harvest that <laughs> yeah. all but made up for this deficit. Right. And it was discovered that the crop itself could be grown outside of ECAS on another planet called Yorba, which was notably less murderous than <laughs> yeah. ECAS. Yeah. And thus, we now had two sources of this crop necessary to create this lens that could be cultivated. And there would never again be a supply shortage of huff of oil required to create these oil lenses. It's true. Now, finally, a connection you may have caught. We've said huff huff. I've made jokes about huff huff because it's so much fun to say. The huff huff oil drawn from the huff huff pods is the same plant, the huff huff plant, that is the source of crimscal fiber. Hey, crimscal mm. fiber. This is the fiber that's used to safely bind humans and livestock across the Imperium that would kind of tighten when struggled against. For a solid example, Jessica's bindings in the first part of Dune, where she's like tossed on the ornithopter and everything, those bindings are crimscale fiber. Right. So much of those ropes are made from, I think, the vines, the ground vines of the huff plant, the same thing where all this oil comes from. Very, very cool. Wow. Very cool. It's because ECAS is dope. ECAS is so cool. <laughs> it's my favorite. All right. That does it for another Spice Morsels episode. It's true. We've joined the hashtag Clean Plate Club. <laughs> yeah. But dear listener, before we let you go, we want to remind you of two great ways to support this podcast. Right. The first way, the best way is to become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. We've got benefits, like ad-free episodes. Ooh, Ooh. top to bottom, no ads, are you kidding? Weekly bloopers and an invitation to our exclusive Discord. Of course, as always, we have to give a huge shout out to our Quisats Hatterack level patron, Case Aiken. Case, my guy. Yeah. If your brother was choking you out, we wouldn't (laughs) hesitate to stick a needle in his neck. Gamjabar, baby. (laughs) We got your back, Case, just like you've got ours. It's in the fucking title. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Thank you so much, Case. Thank you. The second great way to support this show is to check out our merch store at gamjabarshop.com. We've got custom designed art and apparel and stickers, a pint glass, a tote bag, and so much more. So go get yourself some swag and let the world know how much of your personality revolves around Dune. Amazing. Finally, we'd love to hear what you thought about today's episode. Again, trying out these Spice Morsel episodes. They're a work in progress. We want your feedback. Should we do more? What obscure things should we include? If there's a thing you want us to change about it, what is that thing? Write us an email, gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Again, we take it all very seriously, and your input, your feedback makes it all the better. Indeed. Should we change the elite members and the guards of this show? (laughs) Should we murder the old guard and bring in our own people? Let us know. Right. Do you think Rothar's still out there? (laughs) Guys! (laughs) 
<laughs> Guys, help! <laughs> Guys, I'm tired. <laughs> so hungry. <laughs> the myth of Rothar and Polaros and Rothar, <laughs> both out there. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path.